Hello, I'm Monsignor Jim Lasanti. Today, I'm personally speaking, I'll be joined by Ryan T. Anderson. Ryan is the recently appointed new president of Ethics and Public Policy Center. Please stay with us. Welcome to Personally Speaking. I'm your host, Monsignor Jim Lasanti, and Ryan T. Anderson joins me now. On February 1st, political philosopher Dr. Ryan Anderson became the Ethics and Public Policy Center's sixth president. Ryan received his Bachelor of Arts from Princeton University, graduating Phi Beta Kappa and Magna Cum Laude, and he has received his doctorate degree in political philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. He's a prolific author of acclaimed books and articles. One of those books is called When Harry Became Sally, a popular conservative book about transgender issues, which hit Amazon's bestseller list in 2018, which makes it all the more interesting why recently Amazon took his book off their list of available titles. Popular as it was, it was uh, contrary to what Amazon views to be their philosophy, whatever that may be. We'll talk with that about uh, Dr. Anderson as well. Ryan is here with us to talk about a number of questions, about the limits that should be placed on big tech, as well as his goals as he assumes leadership of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, the future of conservatism and the values that matter the most to him, including, of course, his faith and his family. Joining me now, I'm so pleased to welcome to Personally Speaking, Dr. Ryan Anderson. Ryan T. Anderson, our guest. Ryan is president of uh, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. For our listeners around the world, can you tell us what's the center all about, what's its purpose, and how did you get associated with them? Sure. I mean, I think most of our listeners are probably going to be most familiar with the um, Ethics and Public Policy Center because of George Weigel. Uh, George okay. Weigel was the president of the center back in the 1990s. Uh, he's still our senior distinguished fellow in Catholic studies. Um, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar, you know, George is John Paul II's biographer, a close right. personal friend of, uh, of the uh, former pope. Um, but EBBC was founded in 1976, uh, so the bicentennial year of our nation's founding, uh, and it's committed to the Judeo-Christian uh, theological and moral tradition and how that's a source of renewal for the American project, right? So we're both pro-America and we're pro-Bible. Um, and we uh, do research at the highest levels. I mean, so more or less every one of our fellows has a PhD or a JD um, and doing serious uh, research uh, on ethics and public policy and the intersection uh, of those items. So we're doing work on religious liberty. We're doing work on abortion, on marriage, on assisted suicide, on sex reassignment procedures and gender identity, uh, you know, more or less all the non-controversial stuff. Okay, Ryan, let me ask you, one of the things I know you're involved in now and somewhat controversial, I'm going to share with our, our listeners, uh, the uproar continues to grow 
around Amazon's decision to remove EPPC President Ryan T. Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, responding to the transgender moment from its shelves. With the Wall Street Journal editorial today citing the incident as more evidence that the tech companies have grown increasingly open about their ideological censorship and United States Senator Marco Rubio decrying digital book burnings. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your your hope was when you wrote that book. Sure. I mean, so the book came out three years ago, and Amazon has been selling it for the past three <laughs> years. The book hasn't changed in the meantime. It's not like we went back with Invisible Ink, and you know, three years later, the text changed. Um, and so it's a little um, unclear why they removed it. All they will tell us is that it now violates their content policy, but they won't tell us which aspect of their content policy, and they won't tell us which page of the book is the violator. So, mm-hmm. so it's a head scratcher. We don't know. Um, I wrote the book precisely um, to provide some guidance, some way of thinking about what's the most loving and compassionate response to someone experiencing a gender identity conflict. Right. Uh, these people deserve our compassion, our prayers, and authentic help. And they're not getting that right now from the people who say, oh, that you know, what we should do is puberty blocking drugs and cross-sex hormones and surgery. Um, the book was endorsed by you know, professors of psychiatry, psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, and law at elite universities like Johns Hopkins Medical School, Harvard Law School, and the Princeton Politics Department. So it's not as if uh, this was like some fringe, you know, hate-filled right, right. book, which, ma- which makes it all the more concerning because if, if, if even this book is too controversial for Amazon, which book that tells the truth on these issues isn't going to be censored? And when Amazon controls the majority of book sales in the United States, think about the chilling effect that that has on future authors, on publishers thinking about the next book they should or shouldn't publish. And then ultimately for readers, right, on the books you will never even hear about. You're hearing that my book got canceled, but what about all the books that are going to be canceled that you will never even know about, right? So this is a huge area of concern because we need to have open discourse on an issue as important as gender identity and gender confusion. I think Senator Josh Hawley would especially agree with you, as he's also been canceled. Let me ask you this. In, in a parish like mine, I'm a pastor of a 3,000 family parish. I talk a lot about uh, parents and the need for unconditional love for their children, no ifs, ands, or buts. I had one experience last year where a couple came in. They said, we, we come to your church because we love your homilies and especially your emphasis on loving our children unconditionally. They then told me that their 15-year-old uh, had decided he was now a, a girl and that he wanted to have the uh, the surgery done. And they said, because of your homilies and your call for compassion, we're going to fund it. And I immediately said, no, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, talking about compassion is not the same as funding surgery on a 15-year-old kid who hardly knows his own mind. What I'm getting at is we want to be a compassionate people, a compassionate church. But at what point do we stop saying compassion's enough and we've got to take a strong stand saying there's some problems here, folks? Compassion. Yeah, look, I, I think um, the you know the Latin phrase that Pope Benedict used uh, for one of his encyclicals, caritas in veritate, is the way that we should be thinking about this. Uh, love in yes. truth. And you can't separate <laughs> those things, right? You can't separate truth from love and you can't separate love from truth. You know, a, a, a saccharine approach to compassion and charity that's disconnected from truth mm-hmm. isn't real compassion. It's not real charity. And um, 
expressing the truth in a way that isn't charitable isn't really a defense of the truth, right? So if you're if you're just like calling people names and being obnoxious, even if what you're saying is technically true, mm-hmm. you're not really bearing witness to the truth because what you're going to be doing is you're actually going to be like repelling people from the truth. This is why it's important that we speak the truth in love, but it's also important that we love in the truth. And so it's not really loving uh, for someone to... Um, uh, you know, tell their 15-year-old child that, you know, because we love you, we're going to pay for surgery that's not in your best interest, right? Yeah. But what you should be saying is that because we love you, we know that the problem's not with your body. We're not yeah. denying that there's a problem. We're not denying that you feel uncomfortable. We're not denying the sense of alienation right. that you're experiencing from your body. So like very much you should legitimize the struggle. The struggle's real. They're not faking this. And they didn't choose it. It's not like they chose to feel uncomfortable, but the solution doesn't lie with synthetic hormones and surgery. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and I think this is probably the most important thing that we need to communicate. And this also, I mean, to my mind, suggests that there's a, um, a growth opportunity here for Catholic hospitals, for Catholic physicians, for Catholic therapists um, to be developing the technical expertise, because you do need not just uh, the right set of uh, theological convictions, you need the right technical expertise to be able to practice medicine in a way to help people feel comfortable in their bodies. And the government's gonna try to stop that, right? I mean, that's one of the legal issues that we're gonna have to battle is just like the very freedom for Catholic hospitals and Catholic physicians to practice Hippocratic medicine, first do no harm. and so there's a lot of work to be done here by everyone, regardless of what your particular vocation is. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a, a philosophical doctor, a PhD. Right. Uh, so I speak about some of the bioethics uh, aspects of this, some of the worldview, the metaphysics of this. We also need the psychiatrists and the psychologists mm-hmm. and the counselors uh, to be ready, willing, and able to lend their expertise. Right? I mean, God calls us all to different vocations, and we all have a role to play. Ryan T. Anderson is my guest. Ryan, I watched you on an interview with Piers Morgan, and uh, I was struck by the way in which he framed his questions. And I think you're going to run into that a lot. You take strong stands on very controversial issues, but I, he wouldn't let you. He wouldn't let you rest. You know, why? Why don't you want gay people to be happy and have the blessings of marriage? And why are you against gay marriage? And you became the bad guy trying to deny people an opportunity to love one another. Um, do you find it difficult to tell the truth? be compassionate, and deal with the fact that most of your questioners, myself not included, are going to be trying to set you up as as a, a mean-spirited person, denying people their fundamental rights. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, so so I, I'm very fortunate. You know, you, you, can, you can look back at your life and see, like, what God was preparing you for, even if at the time you didn't know it. I went to a very progressive, liberal, left-wing um, Quaker school from first grade through 12th grade. And then I went to Princeton as an undergraduate. So like my entire formative years were surrounded by people who disagreed with me. Uh, And so I'm just used to kind of talking to people who don't agree with me and trying to explain why I believe what I believe in ways that they might be able to understand. And I'm also used to a lot of um, bad faith, right? I mean, I think the sad thing here is that there are good people on the left who will interact with you in good faith, but there are also people on the left who will interact in bad faith, just as there are bad people on the right who interact in bad faith, right? <laughs> right. It's, it's not a partisan is- issue. There are people on all sides of the spectrum who sometimes engage in bad faith. And I think Piers Morgan was an example of that. Uh, for you know anyone who has doesn't know what we're referring to, it was like, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, uh, maybe seven years ago, I went on the Piers Morgan show. He had invited me on as a guest. 
But then he sat me in the audience and he and another guest who were seated, you know, up on the platform at the <laughs> table proceeded to kind of like interrogate me um, right. throughout the interview and like talk down, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, I just kind of like roll my eyes and sigh and just be like, okay, so this is what it is. It's a setup. But it's a shame because like what we should be trying to do is like, how can we actually have respectful civil disagreement? Yeah. You know, John Courtney Murray was famous for saying that, you know, it's a rare achievement to achieve disagreement because so much of what we think is disagreement is just talking past each other, right? And to really achieve disagreement requires, we have to listen to each other. We have to engage each other uh, uh, charitably, right? We have to give each other the benefit of the doubt that we're arguing in good faith. And I think our country needs that now more than ever. Yeah. When I was studying uh, college, Ryan, the uh, was the year that uh, Roe versus Wade came to, into being and Doe versus Bolton. And I imagined that it was so extreme that it wouldn't remain the law of the land for long. Obviously, I was wrong. But I mentioned that in wondering, do you see from your perspective any possibility for common ground or coming together on this issue? And specifically, I guess what I'm troubled by is all the major issues, late-term abortion, parental notice, informed consent, uh, taxpayer funding, the majority of American people poll time and time again as essentially pro-life. And yet I find the major party in charge of our country now uh, clearly going to the extremes on all those issues. Why would you think that a major party would embrace what clearly the American population does not embrace? And how do we find, if possible, a middle ground? So... My sense about the psychology on this is that they actually know that um, their pro-choice agenda isn't as popular as they wish it were. Mm -hmm. And so they're fearful that um, by having parental notification laws or waiting periods or even like fetal pain laws or fetal <laughs> heartbeat bills, that if they give an inch, they might actually be setting up the premise for the entire collapse of the abortion regime. And I think they're correct in that fear, right? I mean, your goal, my goal is to make sure that every child's right to life is protected in law. And so they see that, wait, if we do partial birth abortion bans, if we do um, parental notification, if we do wait, any of those steps is an incremental step towards the ultimate goal of prohibiting the murder of children. Which is why from our side, it's like, all right, let's start with a Born Alive Infant Protection Act. Let's add a partial mm -hmm. birth abortion. Let's keep backing it up because I know that each time we back it up, we're backing it up in the direction of one day achieving the ultimate goal of protecting all babies. And I think they see the same exact thing and they're afraid of that. And so they, it, 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 they've actually been radicalized, right? Joe Biden used to be in favor of the Hyde <laughs> Amendment. Right. He no longer is, right? The Democratic platform used to be in favor of the Hyde Amendment. It's now changed to be against the Hyde Amendment. And I think that's a sign of weakness and it's a sign of fear. It's not a, si a sign of confidence in your position that, right. oh yeah, yeah, you know, abortion is great so we can compromise on these other aspects. We don't have to be so extreme. I actually think the unwillingness to compromise and negotiate is, is a sign of acknowledgement of the weakness of their position. Some years ago, we had the opportunity to interview Governor Hugh Carey and the while he was governor of New York, he was a uh, pro-choice. But yeah. uh, once he retired, he was actually a great spokesperson for the pro-life perspective. And I asked him, did you know the pro-life perspective and, in fact, in your soul, embrace it while you were governor? He said, sure. But he said, I could not have been elected in my party had I not been pro-choice. 
Uh, I asked him why out of office he was uh, so vociferous for the unborn child. And he said, because I'm old and I'm going to die someday and stand before my God. And he'll know that I knew what was the right thing to do. Do you believe that whether it's Joe Biden or so many of these people like Nancy Pelosi, that they don't know that we're talking about uh, a horrible choice for the unborn child? You know, I've never spoken to either, you know, Speaker Pelosi or President Biden. So it's hard for me to speculate um, about them in particular, but I just find it hard to believe that anyone at this point um, doesn't know that the child in the womb is a child because, you know, they're both grandparents. And, you know, I know when I have shared with my parents ultrasound images of their grandchildren, they don't ask me, what is that? Right. They know immediately that's their grandson. That's their granddaughter. Actually, in my case, they didn't know if it was a grandson or a daughter because we waited until birth to find out. But they knew it was their grandchild. Right. And so I I just think, especially now with the I mean, so many people, the first baby picture in the baby book is the ultrasound. (laughs) Yes, right. right. And and, and we don't say, you know, oh, that's a clump of cells. We can't wait to see what it turns into. Look at that. And so and, and so I worry sometimes that um uh, you know, we aren't willing to then say, all right, if that is reality, what does that require of us, right? So we're willing to acknowledge that reality when we're happy about it. We're not willing to say, all right, well, that's also a reality when it might require us to make sacrifices. It might require of us, you know, virtue. Uh, and I think that's where we are as a culture, right? We're very selective in when we acknowledge reality right, and when we right. deny reality. Ryan T. Anderson, I guess, does it help or hurt the work that you're doing at the Ethics and Policy Center, to have a, a Pope who, I must admit to you, I admire him at many, many levels, but he's perceived as uh, someone uh, aligned with some of the points of view of Mr. Obama, Mr. Biden. He's perceived as progressive. Uh, does that matter in the work that you're trying to do? Uh, does it weaken or strengthen your hand? Yeah, I mean, I think it matters. Uh, and, and, and I think this is the challenge, right? Pope Francis is the pro- Pope of a global church. Yeah. And, you know, many times um, he's speaking in ways to try to, you know, govern and, and, and just lead and to teach and sanctify a global church. And it may or may not play well to the particular struggles that we're dealing with in the United States. And I think the media in particular um, quotes him out of context. If you look at what Pope Francis has said about marriage, and about what he calls gender ideology, right. there is no doubt that he's orthodox on these issues. Yeah. But he wants to, he, he's doing what he can to try to uh, present orthodoxy in a way that is more um, kind of uh, appealing or acceptable or open to people who aren't there yet, right? So he's very pastoral to my mind. But I think that can sometimes cause confusion, precisely because it allows the media to selectively quote. I mean, there was this documentary <laughs> of the Pope that was made. I don't know, like six months ago, where they spliced six different sentences from an interview and put them together as if it was one continuous quote. And so then I went back and other journalists and scholars went back and we read everything in context. And when you read every one of the six sentences that they had cut and pasted into a (laughs) news paragraph, it was entirely appropriate. So like one of them was like, of course, you shouldn't kick your gay kid out of the family. Um, but then he also says, but of course, marriage is the union of husband and wife, right? I mean, yes. and so it's like, he wants to say both of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he also said that like in Argentina that, you know, he did, he was against redefining marriage, 
But if there was a way in which there could be legal protections uh, for people who aren't married, you know, a type of like civil unions law that wasn't akin to gay marriage, he would be open for that, right? But people make this seem like he's in favor of gay marriage just under a different name. I, mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I think, I think there is a challenge here where um, the the media wants to present him as less than orthodox. Right. I don't think that's true, uh, and I think we have to remember that you know he's not always focused on like the American 24 hour news cycle, right? And so I think some of our expectations, we have to have different expectations um, just because like, you know, he's not following the stuff that we're following on a day-to-day basis, right? He has to care about the whole global church. Dr. Ryan T. Anderson, so I guess now, Ryan, a few moments ago, you introduced the uh, grandparents reality. So I want to stop there for a second. The man that you've turned out to be, a smart guy, dedicated guy, courageous guy in many ways, what did your parents in raising you do right to make you the guy that you are today? Oh, I mean, I don't know if we have enough time to answer <laughs> that question. We have to stop in a minute or two. Uh, but, you know, a, a couple of things to start with. One, they took us to Mass every Sunday. Uh, mm-hmm. They made sure that we were all baptized. Uh, they made sure we were all catechized. They made sure we all went to confession, received our first Holy Communion, were confirmed. Uh, we prayed every night. Um oh. Example, my dad said every night before he went to bed, I could see he'd kneel down on the side of his bed and say his prayers, right? I mean, so so part of it was even just like the witness that they said. Um, mm. They also, I mean, I think what's been particularly helpful in me was that they encouraged all of us to um, not be afraid to stand up for what we believe in, right? I mean, they they, they had sent us uh, to a pretty progressive left-wing uh, uh, Quaker school, but not to drink the Kool-Aid there, but right. precisely to be able to therefore stand on our own two feet and stand up for what we believe, even if it wasn't, you know, what the reigning orthodoxy at the school was. Uh, and I think, you know, my uh, my mom never went to college. My dad earned his bachelor's degree by going to night school. Wow. And they raised five sons, uh, all of whom are college graduates. You know, <laughs> one went on to law school. One, two of us went on to get PhDs. And it's just, it, it's the rags to riches story. Uh, my mom's parents, you know, came here on a boat from Sicily. Uh, she wasn't fortunate enough to go to college. And now they've, you know, raised five sons and now they have these grandkids. Um, and it's the American story, right? I mean, what, what's unique about my family story is precisely how non-unique it is, right? right? So many of our listeners could tell similar stories. And, you know, and that's what makes me want to work to um, continue that American project, right? Where we can be a melting pot where we can have um, success stories of intergenerational uh, flourishing, and most importantly, where the faith can be passed on. Because right? mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I don't think the um, uh, 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 the material success or the kind of professional success is what matters most in life. What matters most in life is sanctity. Right? It's the holiness, and you know we, we want to you know protect most importantly the religious liberty, right. uh, freedom of the church in this country to do its you know evangelizing and sanctifying. As a parent, is it more frightening when I think about the world in which your parents raised you and your brothers? Now you're trying to pass values that last on to your children, but wow, there's a lot more temptation and difficulty out there. Uh, does that scare you at all, that that to plant good seed in them uh, could be a little more challenging now, even than it was for your parents? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it scares me, but I think you're exactly right that it is more challenging. Um, the, you don't scare the easily, of- I don't think. 
<laughs> but the, the culture in which we live today, and therefore the culture in which all parents are going to have to raise children, is not supportive uh, to biblical orthodoxy. Uh, and so I think we have to be much more intentional with how we raise children and how we form them in the truth and how we uh, shape their moral imagination, because you can't just assume that Hollywood is going to be shaping your child's moral imagination. Uh, if you plop your kid in front of the TV, that's not going to give them the, the formation that they, that they need. Uh, so it's more challenging. But I think that, you know, parents of my generation are up for that challenge. Uh, yeah. I, I am inspired by, you know, the number of friends I have um, who are very deliberate uh, in how they are raising their kids to pass on the faith. All right, let's go back to what we started with in this interview before we wrap. Um, this new McCarthyism from the left, you know, with big tech and in your case, Amazon, while we're all frustrated by that kind of thing, it seems to fly in the face of free speech and our amendment rights. What are we supposed to do about it? They've got the power. What are we supposed to do? A couple of things. One is that we should use our uh, our voices to reach out to Amazon and to um, uh, complain about this if you think what they did was unfair. Uh, two, use your purchasing power. Um, there are other options. You can buy books directly from publishers. You don't have yeah. to go through the middleman of Amazon. Uh, and then three, we need to think about um, not just how big government can you know, undermine human dignity, human flourishing, and, and freedom, but also it seems like big tech can undermine freedom and dignity mm -hmm. and flourishing. And so we need to think about what sorts of limits there should be to the liberties of big tech. Okay, Ryan T. Anderson is our, our guest. We're going to close, but I'd like people around the world who listen to our show to have a little more knowledge about the Ethics Center for Public Policy. Tell us a little bit about how can people find out more about what you and the great people you work with do and become more involved in supporting what you do? Sure. Uh, the website is eppc.org. So if you remember Ethics and Public Policy Center, just use the, the, the letters eppc.org. I love that. Ryan T. Anderson, thank you for being our guest. Thanks for your leadership at the Ethics Public Policy Group. And listen, uh, you've got not just intelligence, but the courage to back up what you say. And man, we really need that in the public square right now. So thank you for all you're doing. And that you got our prayers and support. Uh, make a difference, as I know you do every day. Thank you. All right. Thank you. As we end today's program, I want to thank you all for being with us. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to me at Personally Speaking Podcast at gmail.com. To listen to our Personally Speaking podcast with some of our most recent shows, all you need to do is go to YouTube and punch in Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jim Lasanti. Please don't forget to hit like and subscribe. Personally Speaking is also available as a podcast on personallyspeakingpodcast.buzzsprout.com. You can also listen to past episodes by going to www.closeencountertv.com. And I'd ask you as well to go to my parish website, which is www.ollmp.org. We have past shows as well as Monsignor Jim's weekly mass and homilies. Personally Speaking is also on Facebook at Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jim Lasanti. Please share yourself with others, especially in your family. Personally Speaking is made possible because of the generosity and kindness of many people. I want to thank the Law Office of Anthony Capitola. I want to thank uh, Peg and Pete D'Angelo and for all of you who have given support including my friend Randy and Tom Slade, in keeping us on the air. 
I'm privileged to serve as host and executive producer. Our person is speaking. Our producer is Lisa Jandovitz. I want to thank you all for being with us, and we hope you'll be with us again next time on Personally Speaking.